Hi everyone, I'm your host, Daniel Lee, and welcome to OMD Daily, a podcast about investing in people. Every Monday to Friday, I share with you what I learned the day before from studying people and companies through conversations, whether it's through interviewing investors and business leaders, to reading books and financial reports, and digesting learnings from all the other storytelling mediums out there. The goal is to build my own PhD in combining human performance with investing to figure out how I can help leaders build utopian companies. By exploring my own curiosity, I hope to become a little wiser every day and hope this adds a little nugget of learning to you on a daily basis. Hey everyone, welcome back to OMD Daily. This is the June tw- June 30th, 2020 episode. Um, wow, we're already at the end of a month. And so today is a continuation from yesterday's episode. Um, so this will be part two of my look into the company known as Alphabet, aka Google. So I think last last episode, so yesterday, which I'm already blanking on, I kind of just went over the overview of the company, why it's unconventional, who the customers are, um, the market, the users, um, how the company makes money. And so I think those are the things I covered, like market positioning, etc. And oh, and once again, um, so when I recorded the episode yesterday, I didn't publish um, the full research that I had done because I was still kind of working through everything, hence the two-part series. But now the, the research report is all pu- publicly um, available, so you can just go to the show notes at yesterday's episodes or, or today's, and there will be there will be a link um, to the full report. Or you can just find it on omdventures.com. It's on the homepage. It's in the writing section. It's in the investing section. It's all kind of cross-pollinated everywhere. You'll find it. If, if you wanted to. And so the things I'll talk about today, um, I'll be kind of going over the costs, the margins. Um, I'll be going over the returns on capital, the investment in Google, the culture, management, etc. And just kind of continuously anecdotes and opinions that I have as I continuously do my own thinking and analysis. So to go in, so we know that Google is mainly an advertising company. They make 80% of their revenue, at least 80% of their revenue on um, ads. And something I think that was um, intriguing for me was, well, I was thinking, okay, these guys are practically a software company and they just build this platform once. And, you know, I'm sure there's some maintenance that has to go in, but I just expected the gross margins um, to be much higher and... Personally, I, I'd say as I've been developing as an investor, I've been paying more attention to gross margins than other um, kinds of margins. So the gross margin, if you're not familiar, is um, the percentage that you keep from like the cost after the cost of goods sold. Actually, that was so accounting lingo-y. That wasn't a great example or explanation. Um, how would I explain this? So imagine you sell a widget, um, widget, nail, whatever product you want to think about, or even a notebook. Let's say a notebook. You sold a notebook for $10. I say this as I hold a notebook. Um, so your revenue would be $10. But let's say it took it costs you $4 to make the notebook with the paper and the binding and everything. 
and so the cost per notebook is four dollars to produce and so afterwards you get to keep six dollars and the six dollars is used to i don't know maybe expand your factory hire new people etc but that's what the gross margin gross profit is the gross profit is six dollars how much you get after your cost of goods sold which is the cost related to all the stuff that is incurred to aka make the product and the gross margin is the actual percentage um, that you actually earn so for this example where you get to keep six dollars i said six dollars right yeah so the <laughs> the cost of goods sold is four dollars and you get to keep six dollars so then your margin will be 60 percent all right so nervous doing math <laughs> while on the air but um yeah so that's generally what gross margin is and you know, it's Google's a tech company. Um, it's a software. This is really a software business. So I thought, well, the gross margin should be higher. But um, I believe the ten-year average was in kind of the mid sixties, and recently it's been more in the mid fifties. So that got me curious on why is that so low? Um, what is included in the cost of goods sold for an advertising company? And lo and behold, there's something called TAC which is traffic acquisition cost. I had no idea this thing existed. So it turns out the way it works is, so my familiar term, the more familiar term is CAC, which is customer acquisition cost. And it's one that if you've looked into fast growing companies, you'll know where, whether it's software, you know, SaaS or um, any kind of quote unquote venture backed tech company, they will just spend tons of advertising dollars on Google and Facebook and all the other advertising engines to acquire customers. That's their customer acquisition cost, all the marketing dollars, etc. So they're paying Google and all these advertising engines to acquire customers. Turns out Google pays other people <laughs> to acquire uh, traffic and users to their sites, which I thought was kind of funny. Um, it's kind of this weird cycle where... Other people pay Google for the users that Google is paying other people for the users of. Um, and so traffic acquisition costs, it comes, I think, in many forms, but generally Google calls it they're just fees that they pay to partners and services to direct traffic to Google search engines and platforms. So some examples like, uh, I believe, and don't quote me on this, um, I've heard that Apple gets something like $10 billion of their sales from Google. And I think a large chunk of it is probably associated with the traffic acquisition costs on Google's end, where I believe they have a deal with Apple where the the default search engine is Google for Safari. So a lot of deals seem to go around that where Google will work with various distribution partners like browsers, mobile carriers, um, like OEMs, etc., to somehow drive all kinds of traffic back to the Google platform, whether it's the Google search engine or the other various um, products that Google has, like Google Maps, for example, that people will directly be going to Google Maps when you click on something from someone else's site. So it seems that Google has these kinds of partnerships all set up. And the traffic acquisition cost has historically been, um, when I'd say early on, let's look, let me look at this chart properly. Yeah, I'd say in the early 2000s, it was something close to 30, or the odd 30, 35% of revenue. So your gross 
your gross margin um, would have been something like 60, 65%, 75% ish. And the traffic acquisition cost as a percentage of ad revenues has declined constantly. So I think now the ste- possible steady state is around the low 20% mark, which would make me think that, well, then does that mean the advertising business is supposed to have a much higher gross margin of, you know, the high 70%? range so then why is google's gross margin in the mid 50s is it the other businesses that are dragging it down and are they just not as profitable maybe and maybe not um i think this gets still unclear and maybe that's why google hasn't broken it out because it's hard just too tricky to do so um so one big component of the cost of goods sold at google is tac the tac which makes up um i want to say uh, about 40% of the total cost of revenues, the cost of goods sold. And the remaining 60% is called other, quote unquote. And the other includes um, everything from content acquisitions um, for like video licensing on YouTube, for example, um, subscription services on Google Play, um, like content providers who also like provide stuff, I think, on the Play Store, for example, um, expenses associated with like data centers, other like operation stuff like bandwidth, also the customer support people that run, I think, the Google like help forums and just answer all kind of customer queries, um, equipment costs, energy, etc. So you can't really say that, oh, the advertising business just has a much higher gross margin at 70-something percent because we just only take taking into account the TAC and that the other segments, like the other bets of the Google, like um, all the Moonshot projects, but also the Google Cloud, um, the YouTube subscription, the Google Play Store, all the hardware, saying that that's all lower margin. Like some, some elements could be, but it seems like the other costs include all these various elements of it. So, yeah, I don't know. It seems like a holistic thing, but that was kind of an interesting look. I've never learned. Was a, the big learning was about tech and just kind of understanding how Google spends its money to acquire uh, traffic and build the content site. And then I think I learned something. I was curious on like the margin impacts of like various ads because not all ads are equal. Um, and I learned that YouTube ads actually monetize at a lower um, margin than search ads. So there could be a possible tailwind in margin compression um, because, sorry, headwinds with margin compression because I think YouTube's growing at a much faster rate than search ads are. Um, I'm personally just very biased and bullish on YouTube becoming a much larger platform um, of the entire Google ecosystem. And so as more YouTube ads come online and if they continue to, earn a lower gross margin than search ads do, then that could continuously result to margin compression. Um, apparently also mobile ads are at a lower gross margin than desktop ads, which is weird because Facebook com- Facebook makes most of their money on mobile ads, I believe. I Don't quote me, I haven't looked into the company, but I just know that they made a huge shift to mobile and a lot of their ads are mobile-based, um, yet they have a really high gross margin of 80% plus, which is you know, at least 20% higher than Google's. So I'm unsure about that too, where it's like, well, 
Is it just saying that only Google's mobile ads are at a much lower gross margin than their desktop ads? I'm not sure. Um, but if this is true for Google, then I believe mobile ads are also continuously growing faster than desktop ads as more people spend more time on mobile, etc. So that could lead to further margin compression. Um, even Google's expansion into the international markets apparently uh, results in advertisement dollars that are of lower margins um, compared to the domestic U.S. market. So as Google continuously seeks to grow internationally, that could also lead to gross margin compression. So there's, I think, all those factors um, that possibly could be headwinds, but at the same time, Google's just getting bigger and bigger and just adding more and more you know, absolute revenue. So maybe they'll have some kind of scale advantage um, that's going to make everything go okay. I don't know. But these are all kind of pretty interesting factors to consider, just like the whole holistic advertising engine that they have. And then on the topic of reinvestment, um, this was a pretty long one, but it unfortunately, Google doesn't really separate out costs in too much detail. Like I just know that they have R&D expenses. And so that's one major factor of reinvestment. Um, R&D is like 16% of their sales. Um, they also have what I would consider growth capex, which includes all the kind of data centers that Google said they are building out. Um, they said they're investing heavily in land and offices and all kinds of IT infrastructure. And I think with the battle to the cloud, um, Google is definitely investing heavily there. And I, you, you can see CapEx continuously um, increase, but it's not as clear what percentage of that CapEx is actually maintenance versus um, growth. And I wasn't too sure how to think about that. I took a look at the depreci the depreciation expense um, in the income statement, and that comes out to about half um, of the actual like, capital expenditure amount that's in the cash flow statement in the investing section. And so that made me think, well, the, the divergence is pretty huge, and what are what's Google really depreciating? And most of what Google depreciates are its land and building and its info technology assets. And the info technology assets include mainly, from what they say, like, um, I think server centers and kind of network equipment. So, and that is depreciated at a much faster rate of three to five years versus land and building, which I believe is depreciated at 25 years. Um, I think that's what they said. And generally, uh, buildings when they're depreciated I think it's still they tend to be depreciated at a much faster rate um, than what they're actually in real in real terms um, valued for I'm not too sure about the infotech but in in one way it made me think well is Google being kind of um, could they be overestimating the depreciation on their assets assets so then could depreciation depreciation expense be the proxy for maintenance capex and then the remainder the other 50 percent um be part of growth capex i'm not too sure uh that's something they haven't really broken out so i'm kind of wary on making a decision on that but i believe what's clearer is that r&d expense is probably more of the reinvestment component of the business um and so yeah i think in the report i kind of go through how I calculate um, return on invested capital, looking at return on capital employed. They're both kind of similar, but overall, um, 
looking at the balance sheet of Google. What's I think really cool that if people didn't know is how much cash Google has. I think nearly 50% of their balance sheet is in cash and equivalents. And it's, it's something I thought about was funny is how generally in the investing community, if a business has too much cash, they're kind of um, penalized. Like they're not looked upon as favorably. Um, the management team gets criticized for poor capital allocation, for having too much cash on the balance sheet. And in one way, it might be just because I live in North America and a lot of the finance community is in the U.S. And so there's this, you know, I think the cultural U.S. mentality of spend, spend, spend and kind of running a business with tons of debt and just with barely enough capital to weather any bad storms, which is taking, which is revealing that many businesses were pretty poorly managed, um, especially with this recent COVID crisis. Because look at look at it now, like all these tech companies, um, all the fan companies with tons of cash, are being applauded, and people are saying, "Yeah, like look look how great this management team was with plenty of cash, and look how safe they are." But I remember when I was looking at companies in Japan and South Korea where the companies would have they'd be flush with cash and the other investors and the kind of investing community would continuously penalize um, and be kind of critical of the management teams there because they're saying, oh, look at all the cash they have. They don't need this cash. Like, why why do they hold so much cash? Why can't they just do share buybacks or distribute it all to shareholders? And in one way, I understand that. But at the same time, I think having a lot of cash gives optionality. Um, and so I'm, I'm personally in favor of companies with a lot of cash in their balance sheet. Um, yeah, it would like... I would like to see them use it over a 10-year cycle. But if I see it, you know, plenty of cash over five years or something, I'm fine with that. I don't need them to do anything with it. It just gives them constant optionality and they don't ever have to, you know, take on unnecessary debt. But yeah, that's kind of um, on the cash situation of Google. So they, like, their net cash position. So after all debt cap, cap leases, they'll still have about $100 billion at least in cash, I think. And at a market cap of what nine fifty billion, that leaves their enterprise value to something like eight fifty billion. Oh no, just these are just like approximates. Um, but yeah, I looked at the balance sheet, and I think by traditional metrics, the return on invested capital was looking at something around the mid-teens um, mark. I think the average was something like sixteen percent, and uh, sorry, sixteen percent. I think the average was over in the last like six years. Um, and I looked at the share price. Uh, growth over the last the same six year period, and turns out the Kager was sixteen percent as well. So, in one way, it kind of align, aligns with what Charlie Munger said, where over over time, um, the business will return to shareholders what it actually returns on invested capital. So, sixteen percent ROIC over six years, and a Kager of sixteen percent um, for the share price. So, there is definitely kind of alignment there. But the way I calculated. Um, return on capital employed, which is my measurement for return on um, investment is I capitalize, I like to capitalize human capital um, expenditures because I think that's the key asset. And I think that's where all the reinvestment is going. So I'll end up capitalizing a good chunk of the R&D over the last few years. And when I use that, um, and also calculate my own returns in a completely different fashion. So when I do that, I get a return on capital amount of something between 25 to 30 percent um also adjusting for their acquisitions so accounting for management's capital allocation decisions so the lower band of kind of the 25 percent maybe even 
low 20s uh, accounts for capital allocation decisions with acquisitions. Um, and then the high 30% would be in a business where if they didn't do as much acquisition um, going forward. So I personally think Google can Google's returning capital in the 20, 20 to 30% range. Um, and given the current enterprise value of approximate 850, um, I think they're trading at something like a 4% earnings yield or owner earnings yield. And so that being, that makes you think, yeah, so what does that mean? Um, is 4% good, bad? Well, if I, if I believe the business earns return on capital of 25 to 30%, it earns 4%, um, the big factor that it considers growth. And I think a benchmark for ad spend growth is that it's kind of in line with um, growth of the economy. So if I use GDP as a proxy, I can say that, yeah, maybe in real terms, um, the organic growth rate for the ad market in general would be 4%. And you know, there could also be that 4% can include the transition from digital to, uh, sorry, from old media traditional to digital, as well as the expansion of the uh, economy. So I think 4% is pretty reasonable there. That gives me um, an expected return of something like an 8%, I think, on the lower bound. Um, like... Google has grown their revenue over the last decade at around like 17% on average. Um, I'd say recent years has definitely slowed down, but it's still relatively lumpy. Like there will be years with 15%, but the next year it might be 20%, which is pretty impressive for a, a business of this size. Now, could they grow at 17% on average for the next 10 years? Possibly. I think it's quite possible. Um, given how the company has an ability to continue, continuously build products um, that seem to work cohesively well with the entire ecosystem they've created. Like they have parts of the business that are platform, parts of the business that are kind of more of an aggregator. So it's it's a weird behemoth that I personally have a hard time getting a grasp of in terms of how big their market really is. Like, Because... I think Google's more than just an advertising company and they've shown that they are continuously expanding in other markets. Um, so yeah, when I think about that, I honestly the range I get is I would expect a return over the next kind of, you know, 10 years of anywhere between 8 to 30%. Uh, I think that's pretty reasonable. That's a pretty reasonable band. And yeah, that's, a, that's at least what I think with um, the current price and the current environment that Google is in. But we'll see. We'll see how that all progresses out. I'll let you know in 2030. And remember, these are not advices or like investment advice or anything. These are all just opinions and quibbles and rants of just some individual. Now, after that, I want to go and talk about management and culture, which is a fun segment for me. Um, I'll try to make it quicker. I understand that it's already been 20 minutes. Wow. Time flies when you babble. So management, um, I mean, most people know the, the co-founders of Google, Larry Page and Sergey Brin. They founded the company in 1998. And I believe when they IPO'd, um, Sergey and Larry collectively had more than 65% of the voting rights. Currently, they have more than 52%. Uh, they have about 52% of the voting rights. So they still are the... Um, major owners of Google. The voting rights are pretty evenly split. Um, Larry has 
I think, 26, and Sergey has 25, um, and then there's some decimals here and there. But overall, they've continued to maintain control of Google. Um, Eric Schmidt is another big holder. I believe he has 5% of the voting rights. He was the previous CEO and previous chairman of Google. And I think what's... Uh, what else... I'm trying to think how I should navigate all these various story tidbits. Um, it's also kind of a reflection of my hazy mindset. But uh, let's kind of talk about the consistency. I think that's a big theme. I think what's really cool, what's really cool is, so I looked at the 2012 um, year-end proxy statement compared to the 2019 year-end proxy statement. So in over the seven-year period, I wanted to see... Um, what does Larry and Sergey do in regards to compensation in terms of ownership? Um, I just want to see if, if there are signs of abuse in regards to that. And it turns out, no, there isn't, which was really amazing to see. So although they had, um, so most of all their shares are in these class B shares, which are the majority super voting um, shares that are not traded on the public market, but Larry and Sergey can, transfer the class or turn the trans, the class B shares into the class A shares in a one for one basis and then they can sell that off in the public markets and they can just, you know, live their life that way. And it seems like that's what they've been actually doing. So Larry and Sergey have I believe trimmed um, so they each used to have about twenty about twenty five million class B shares and in twenty twelve and as of recently they have about twenty million. So they really didn't um, sell off their ownership in that major way, I think. Um, they still retain a good chunk of the business and they've allowed capital appreciation to continuously maintain the ownership that they have. Um, like their net worth is still much higher even if they sell off the shares. And that got me curious, and well, are they kind of abusing their power? Were they paying themselves exorbitant salaries? And it turns out they weren't. Um, even dating back to, I think, 2010, they've only been paying themselves a dollar in salaries. And yeah, I think that's super impressive just to know that for the last decade, um, the two co-founders who at various times were CEO, president, um, chairman, were completely just living off of the ownership of the business that they had. Um, Google doesn't pay a dividend, so and the founders weren't paying themselves any bonuses. They weren't paying themselves any equity compensation. They purely lived off of the class B shares that they had. And I felt that this was such a class move. Um, you rarely see founders do that. And it just gave me a lot of respect and trust for the management team, um, or at least the co-founding team. I think one thing that I'm a little saddened about is the fact that both Larry and Sergey decided to kind of step down from the day-to-day -day operations of Google. Um, they announced that in the end of 2019. So uh, I believe Sergey was the president of Alphabet and Larry was the CEO of Alphabet, but they've both decided to step down and give the position over to Sundar Pichai, who, is the, who was the CEO of Google, but now he is the CEO of Google and Alphabet. But Larry and Sergey will be on will still be on the board of directors as directors and as co-founders. But yeah, that got me thinking, well, what extent, what would be the extent of their involvement? I like, obviously I won't really know for sure. Um, I don't know how involved they were even prior to this official announcement either. So maybe it's not a big deal, but 
it I think was an unfortunate thing because um, I want to see the co-founders continuously at the helm. But in one way, this is also fascinating too because the way they describe Google over the years, I think, tells a little bit about the culture of the company because um, I think in the mid 2000s or maybe the early 2010s, I remember reading a letter where the co-founders described Google as a teenager at that point. They were saying, oh, if Google was a human, uh, it'd be a teenager given the amount of years it's uh, been in existence. I thought that was pretty fascinating. And just to kind of describe your business as a human and kind of talking about the fast growth of like a child and then the adolescent phases. And um, as they departed in 2019, the 2019 letter, the co-founders talked about how if Google was a person, um, it would be he would be a young adult at 21 years of age and i thought that was once again quite fascinating to look at um because they described their role as kind of you know they don't want to be the nagging parents anymore but they want to be the parents that let the young adult kind of make his own decisions and kind of be kind of guiding principles uh, at the top so i think that might be an indication of their involvement um they'll still They'll probably help you under in kind of providing guidance. But I think overall, the bigger takeaway for me was how the founders looked at Google as a human being. Um, And it could also be telling of the kind of stage that Google is at as a company. Like if it's a young adult, yeah, it might not be going through the fast development and growth that it did as a a younger company. Um, That might be obvious, but it could also be telling of how they think about the business in the future where it's still a young adult. So it has a lot of different things to explore. Um, what else? Before I go deeper into the culture, I want to talk a little bit about the executive team and the compensation. Um, so in regards to management, so I think, you know, Google's had a pretty, um, I want to say, I think a pretty um, thoughtful transition for all their executive teams. So like the story of Eric Schmidt, like you can learn it from reading about um, Bill Campbell and the Trillion Dollar Coach book or just listen to Eric Schmidt's interviews and how he was recruited into Google with the help of like John Doerr and um, Bill Campbell and his role in working with the co-founders and you know, Eric wasn't groomed internally to be a CEO, but he came in 2001 at a particular time when Google needed someone to help lead the business. And that's also pretty interesting too, because the company is only three years in, but they end up hiring a CEO, um, which I found to be pretty fascinating for the co-founders to even think about doing. And then when Schmidt decided to step down and Pichai took over the reins as CEO of Google, Pichai had already been in the business in the company since 2005 so he'd already been with the business for you know 15 years before he decided he became this who who he is now which is a ceo of alphabet and google but i think that also shows that pichai has been kind of groomed internally for a very long time to eventually lead the business so there definitely is some depth to management there like if i look at the cfo and the chief of legal i believe the chief of legal is been with the business since the early 2000s um the cfo since 2015 so there definitely is some relative depth i'd say to the company itself um and the board has been pretty intact for a very long time 
um, I think the chair is John Hennessy, or I forget who is it. Yeah, John Hennessy. He's been the chair since two thousand and four, I believe, at the board of directors. John Doerr has been on the board since nineteen ninety nine, and he's barely sold any of his um, Class B shares in Google. So that's also kind of a huge vote of confidence for me. And so in terms of the management depth, I think that this is pretty solid. I'm not too big of a fan of their compensation metric. Um, although something to note is that Google has been continuously evolving their compensation scheme. So when they first started, they had just salary and annual bonuses and equity like many companies do. But over time, they decided to get rid of the annual incentives and only focus on long-term equity or salary. So continuously focusing on the long-term idea that's continuously referenced in um, all their shareholder letters. Like you just constantly get the idea that, yeah, they're going to continuously invest for the long-term, but they will forego any kind of short-term things. But I think the recent uh, compensation metric that, you know, Pichai has, it's a mix of restricted stock units, um, which I believe they call GSUs that vest over three-year periods. Eh, three years, not really long-term, so I'm, I'm kind of critical of that. But also there's a component, I think a third of his compensation, um, of his 200 and what, $80 million compensation in equities. Uh, a third of it comes from the performance stock unit, which I'm like, okay, that's good. That was a performance unit. Um, but the performance is not tied to any return on investment metric, nor growth, but rather a metric of share price increases. So total share returns called TSRs. And I think that's pretty disappointing um, because share price is something companies have no control over. Absolutely not. Um, yeah, you can even say that, yeah, do they really have control over their revenues? Mm, yeah, I guess they don't. They can't really tell a customer to buy a product, but they have, I believe, more control over how those outcomes happen compared to share prices. Like share prices have, in my opinion, over long term, it should indicate um, the business business's success. But this PSU um, looks at share price movements over a three-year period, which I don't think is a long enough time period. So that's kind of disappointing to see how you know a company run by founders who tout the wisdom of Buffett, etc., will use such shitty um, performance metrics. But yeah, I also understand he's also running the largest, one of the largest companies in the world, but I can be as critical as I want in my own podcast. So that's something I'm critical of. Um, something else I think I want to... Okay, so I'll actually use this time to move into culture. Um, key things with culture, I think I alluded to in the previous podcast so that Google really is a pioneer of just all kinds of workplace um, standards. Or kind of what what is considered to be like good workplace environments now. Like they've kind of set the standard for themselves, and they are the pioneers. They started, you know, things like the twenty percent time, where every Google employee can allocate twenty percent of time to of their time to new projects, and that leads to comp- products like AdSense or Google News. Um, although they don't do that anymore, I believe um, these kinds of I think systems allow Google to create that. I also think on the talent front that. Google is still ahead than most companies. So I think talent war is the key thing for Google's success because the entire company succeeds based on who works for them, really, and what those people do. Um, It's not like they have some kind of geographic advantage. They don't have any regulatory advantage. Every advantage they have was created from people. And as far as talent wars go, I think Google, you know, they have the deep pockets to pay anyone any kind of money that they believe is uh, that values them properly, like 
top data scientists at Google make easily millions of dollars a year. So from that perspective, it's hard for any other company, I think, to compete with them on technical talent, um, especially on like the data side and the machine learning side. And when it and in the report, I kind of have all these anecdotal um, stories from talking with people related who worked at Google, who work still work at Google, and uh, I spoke with like a data scientist friend at Google, and he was telling me about how compared to startups, like working as a data scientist in a startup is boring because you only get to build, you just have to build the infrastructure to ingest the data, but you really have no data to work with. But for data scientists, it's all about solving huge problems with data. And unless you have an extremely large amount of data, your analysis could actually be worthless. So for many people who just want to solve really interesting problems and use data doing it, you really want to be at where all the data is, which is either going to be Google, Facebook, or one of the other big tech companies that just continues to collect the data of the world. So considering that like Google actually has an environment that will allow these people to actually solve the big problems that they actually want to do, which kind of makes me transition to what I think is very unique about Google. Like, I think Google is very different from advertising com- other advertising companies like Facebook um, or I don't know what that... I guess Amazon's also different too. Like They're all unique in their own special snowflakey ways but i think google's different than most of the fang the fang mag companies like microsoft netflix facebook uh, maybe even amazon i think google's the only company out of the large tech companies that's actually solving very important problems um i don't think facebook or microsoft is doing any of that like facebook just like their products just are there to garner attention and create envy and jealousy like i always have a negative biased view um but i don't think they're out there to solve huge problems in the world neither do i think microsoft is like they're just making life easier for yeah companies in general but they're not really solving any huge problems they're not making life particularly i think um better for people they might make it slightly easier yeah like it's more convenient microsoft excels better yeah like Thank goodness for Windows, etc. But if I think about um, what Google is doing, maybe it's like in the altruistic sense. Um, like obviously, I know that Google is trying to build, you know, make money on all they do. But I feel like Google is an advertising company as more of like a side hustle. I feel advertising is just kind of the side thing that they do to continuously focus on their existing core mission of just kind of making the world a better place for everyone. Because I think they're the only they're the unique place where people can come and actually solve huge problems. I think the Moonshot project allows for that. I know there's I've had like enough friends who go to Google or have worked at Google where you know they say yeah it's just kind of like retiring, just get paid to just sit and and yeah there are employees that do that um, and I think that's inevitable for Google given how the size um, of the company has just kind of grown to such a huge number and yeah many people will fall through the cracks but i think for me i've always wanted to ignore the majority and the average like yeah like those are the misses um but they should never kind of define the company for what the culture is and what they are and i think it's going to be the handful the 10 percent who still get attracted to google to actually solve the big problems who actually make the difference with the company the 90 percent probably won't um and i think and that's a belief i have for every company um 
it's just that in this case for Google, this is more prominent because when you're a smaller company, yeah, like maybe 80% will be valuable. But as the company gets bigger, that number continuously shrinks. That 80% will still be valuable, but you start adding all the other people onto the business. Um, but yeah, that makes me believe that Google's like Google has been sometimes criticized for having an engineering-driven culture, saying that um, people are the culture is unfair because um, managers like to give engineers more say, and it's kind of like the engineers are the big dogs of the business. And in one way, that's I guess true. It might be true, but I also think that Google is more of a research culture. Um, it might stem from the fact that both co-founders were kind of, you know PhD students or researchers. Um, to begin with and I think Google has that culture within them I don't think they're a product culture where you just want to build stuff fast fail fast and I think that might be close to what Facebook is um, at least from what I've heard but I think Google's more so you have all these questions and you get curious about it um, and then you decide to find ways of solving the problem and I think that's kind of the ethos of the company. And obviously, all the, all this is opinion, and there really isn't factual numbers to base all this. But I think that's kind of what I want to end up with. End up um with the company. Like it was a pioneer in amazing culture, and yeah, I'm sure there's. I believe there are better companies out there that now emphasize on investing in people. Um, but I think Google is still better than most and i think what they get mislabeled as by being grouped into with the fang group of you know large quote-unquote tech companies is that i believe the rest are all pretty kind of profit business driven but i think google is kind of more like a giant research lab it's kind of like a huge university on its own and I think that makes the company operate and think in a much different way than the other companies do. And I think this would make the company look weak um, compared to how investors and kind of Wall Street likes to look at companies. But that also makes me think that they might be the only ones that are actually doing something continuously good for the um, world. Like I think many companies, as they get larger, will get more corrupt, they'll get more bureaucratic and people find ways where they're doing stuff wrong. All companies do stuff wrong. It's just bigger companies. It's just more obvious. <laughs> and I think, yeah, Google will probably have many sidesteps, but yeah, it, it's a business that makes me think, oh, I'm really happy that this exists. It's created a lot of consumer plus, surplus for me. And yeah, that's kind of my look on the company. Um, I hope this was fun, entertaining. And yeah, please check out the full kind of, report that i've written it's this one's pretty long because of how big google is but hope it's insightful um yeah so thanks for tuning in and take care